Oh, hello. I didn't see you sitting there. Welcome. This is the Traeger Method Podcast, episode number 75. How do you like that? My guest today, I'm so happy to share this conversation. I mean, I'm always overjoyed to share these conversations, right? But this one, Gary Floyd. I mean, there are punk rock legends and there are punk rock legends. Gary Floyd, he is the latter. Well, he's both. But uh, yeah, Gary Floyd, Texas punk legend. San Francisco Bay Area punk legend. National, international Queer punk icon legend. I mean, Gary Floyd, the Dicks, Sister Double Happiness, the Gary Floyd Band. One of the great voices of American punk, probably the bluesiest, which, as we find out, that's what he was listening to before he got into punk. Lightning Hopkins, John Lee Hooker, talks about that before I talk about what Gary and I talk about. I should say, the audio on this one, including this intro here, I don't have my podcast equipment with me. And my conversation with Gary, it's a little rough on the audio. It's a little lo-fi. Hopefully the mastering algorithms that I use on these podcasts will improve it a little But You know, we'll, we'll all roll with it, right? Thank you. Hmm. Like most TM pod listeners, I grew up on punk. I know it's not about slick production, it's about what we're saying that matters and how we say it. Maybe you don't understand every word on a record. doesn't matter. Maybe you don't understand every word in a podcast. That's a little more important, but still, it's okay. I should print out a, make a lyric sheet for each episode. <laughs> Handwritten, Xeroxed, grainy black and white photos. Or I could just post to Instagram more often. That would be an idea too, huh? explain stuff that way. Yeah, I should mention, Gary and I were good friends in San Francisco. When I, when I lived there in, in the later 80s and the early 90s, we hung out together all the time. Uh, we were part of a circle of friends. We talk a lot about those people, names like Philip Gilbo, Joanne Cavana, Debbie Gordon, Joanna Muck. These were all people that worked at Alternative Tentacles, Rough Trade, um, Philip was Gary, Gary explains who Philip was, his best friend. Moved out here together from Texas. Made uh, Joan and I talked about. I'm back in that episode with Joan Stebbins from Reno from the Rex. She and I talked about Philip Gilbo at the opening of that uh, conversation. So you see a thread here. Lynn Perko, who was also the drummer of the Rex from Reno with Joan, Bessie, and Helen. Pretty sure they were the first all-female hardcore band from that American hardcore early 80s scene. Lynn went on to be the drummer of the SF Dicks. The band re had a lineup change when they got to SF. Sister Double Happiness, Imperial Teen, which she was in with Joan. Roddy from Faith No More, who also hung out in the group I'm talking about. It was the gang. And I got to tell you, this is, I just occurred, <laughs> it just occurred to me. Gary talked about how he quit smoking and drinking, but, uh, I was the only one, because I was probably like 18, 19, 20. They were all, I don't know, 5 to 10 to 15 years older than me. They all smoked like chimneys. This was, you know, the 80s. I was the only one who did not smoke cigarettes, you know? 
I can actually remember one of the times that I felt like I was closest to death was this one afternoon. It was like a rainy San Francisco afternoon. We were all packed into Joe's. My brother lived in that apartment at one point when he moved to San Francisco. Don Ankrum, previous Traeger Method guest, he also talked about how he stayed there when he first got to town. It was a real cool apartment in San Francisco up above the Castro district. The kitchen looked out over the city. Like there was a deck back there and you could just look out down over Market Street and the Castro and so it probably cost like $10,000 a month now. $5 million or something. But back then, you know, just a normal apartment you could rent. And I just remember one rainy afternoon Everybody, the whole gang was there, and everybody smoked except me. And everybody's just chain-smoking. We're drinking Canadian Club whiskey for some reason. That's etched in my mind. I think it's because I almost died this day. But everybody's chain-smoking, and around, I don't know, five or six, after a full afternoon of drinking and smoking, my eyes, like, swelled shut. They became puffy. My lungs just went into some kind of tobacco overload and I just, I could not breathe. And I remember going out on the back deck, just, just gasping for air. Back then, it really didn't matter. If you were into music and you didn't smoke, you smoked. You smoked. You just smoked other people's cigarettes as the smoke left their lungs. That's how it worked. Everybody you knew was a human bong. You were taking rips off of the bong water was their blood. And if you were a child in the 70s, you smoked because every grandparent smoked. So you breathed their grandpa and grandma's cigarettes. I know I did. World War II people, man. Not a lot of non-smokers among them. Speaking of war, Gary tells us how he was drafted to go to Vietnam in 1972. I don't recall ever hearing that story, which is kind of crazy, but maybe I did and I just don't remember. Who knows? I should say Gary did not ship out to Vietnam, as you will hear. He, he uh, served his time stateside working in hospitals as a conscientious objector. Tells some harrowing stories from working at the Rusk Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Again, not to give it all away in the intro, but there's one story he tells of a person he met there who had been caught by his parents dressing in women's clothing, and he was sent to the Rusk Hospital where he was tortured, electrocuted, to try and get him to stop doing this. Which, of course, is horribly barbaric. And it's doubly disturbing that there is a movement afoot in America today that would love to return to that type of practice. The far right, of course, well, just the right, whatever. The, far, the right is the far right now, right? So, in the course of doing this podcast, I often reflect on the 80s, the Reagan era. And it can be disturbing to see how little has changed or gotten what has gotten worse. But then also, you know, other things have gotten a lot better in terms of the culture and its respect for human rights. But ultimately, I think the lesson is often that comes to me is just that the struggle is, is the struggle. It, there's no end to it. There's never an end to it. It's just like life. It, the road is the destination. History, whatever you want to call it, is, is, is always a push-pull. It never stops this tug-of-war thing. I remember after the 
George Floyd protest era. A lot of very young activists were really disappointed that systemic change wasn't instituted in the aftermath of that tumult. And people who have been around a little bit were like, well, that's not really how it works. I think every generation of radicals, protesters, activists, people seeking change confront this. You know, you, you do what you do. You make your voice heard. You stand up for what you believe in. But you don't, you can't, you know, wed your happiness to getting the results you desire. You have to do what you do and not attach to outcomes. Again, this is true for life, generally speaking. Do the best. Adjust your methods along the way. Take care of yourself. Treat yourself and others kindly so you don't burn out. And just keep going. Living your truth. I mean, that's the best you can do. And Gary talks about this in our interview. Talks about you know, being honest with yourself. So important. Like, it really is the key to everything. Be honest with yourself and kind to others. That's one of Gary Floyd's teachings in this interview that I'm so happy to share with you. God, at the beginning of this conversation, we go through a roll, roll call of uh, all the people who've died from our friend group, and from Gary's life. I'm so glad Gary's around to do this interview. I'm so glad I'm here to do this interview and share it with you guys. I'm so glad you're here, dear listener. Thank you for supporting the podcast, Trigger Method Patreon. Please, if you like what I do, what we do, what this is, please support it. Thank you. Got some new supporters recently. Thank you so much, every single one of you. I, I Over the moon. And if you're a listener, tell a friend. If you like the podcast, share it. If you like this content, thank you. As I was picking out music for this episode, for the bumpers, so many great songs, man, the dicks, so many great songs. Sister Double Happiness, endless hits. But I was also thinking about that Butthole Surfers song called Gary Floyd, the tribute to Gary Floyd, that song. I love that song. It's, it's so good. Listen to that. I hadn't heard that in years. You know the song. I'll play it right now. Boom. song rules. Remember seeing the Butthole Surfers do that song live at Lollapalooza, 1991, I think it was, 91. First Lollapalooza ever, I think, was the one in uh, Shoreline Amphitheater, Bay Area. Um, seeing that, you know, the Butthole Surfers, and that era where punk was breaking, you know, in front of a crowd that I considered a very normie crowd. It was just, it was wild seeing a band like the Butthole Surfers 
in the, during the day on a huge stage in front of however many thousand people. This was a band that typically played at, you know, the clubs prior to that year. It was just, what a time, what a time that was. We talk about that time in our conversation when our friend Debbie Gordon became an A&R person <laughs> working for Warner Brothers. Weird, weird stuff. A lot of music eras we talk about in this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Gary, for sharing your story and all the music over all these years. I love you. I love you, dear listener. Thank you. And please enjoy my conversation with true Texas Bay Area international punk legend, Gary Floyd. Gary, it's so good to see you. It's been a long time. Thank God for Zoom, eh? Uh, yes, thank God we're here. <laughs> That's the name so many didn't make it. I know. I was thinking, uh, when I was thinking about our conversation coming up, I was, I kept, I keep thinking about Philip Gilbo. My dearest brother for many, many years. And uh, so close, such good friends. There was a, uh, I had another friend that I had met right around that time. When did you meet well, Philip? I met him in, uh, well, the Dicks were just about to start, so about 79. And I met him through another dear friend from Austin. Very, very different from Philip, but they were good friends too. But he was one of my dearest friends. His name is Raymond. And he also passed away like about a year ago. Devastating. Both of those people, my parents. And I'm not unique in this, but I am feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> but <laughs> Go I'm ahead. Unique. <laughs> parents, grandparents, uh, my sister, many good Glenn, who played guitar for the Dicks. Great guitarist. Danny Roman, who was with me and. uh, Sister Double Happiness and Gary Floyd Band. Matt, who played guitar for Black Collie Ma. So it goes on and on. It's just a list. And I realize it will continue happening until I don't know what's happening anymore. <laughs> I mean, that'll be my big uh, exit. But again, I'm sure you also share these. Uh, happenings yeah i spent uh the second half of last year of, of last year with my stepdad as he died of cancer that puts it all in made perspective me grow up quite a bit was uh, i spent um my mother was sick i was living here she was in uh good lord lake jackson texas which is one of those like I don't know. Do I need to keep my language good? No. A shithole <laughs> in Texas. And uh, 
she lived in an apartment complex. <laughs> it was a, uh, however, I was happy. I was able to go back. I got there on like ha- Halloween, and I left uh, Christmas the day after Christmas. And uh, during that period was a very growing up period because there was a certain length of time that I was the parent. You know. What and year was this? It was 1988. I had just left uh, Sister Double Happiness to join a uh, monastery. And so I had that time off. And uh, I didn't make it to the the monastery. But I was there and able to take care of her. And it was a horrible blessing. And I was, uh, I guess that's telling me to turn the sound off, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm not going to. Our listeners um, can deal with the bleeps and bloops. Yeah, there'll be a lot of them. People won't think it's their phone, maybe. <laughs> anyway, so the sadness is lifted, and here we are. And so where are you? You're in Seattle? Or Portland. Portland. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, how do you like it? I like it. I've been here almost 20 years at this point. You know, I'm from, I'm from the Northwest originally. I lived, you know, I grew up in Seattle and then moved to San Diego and then to San Francisco where we met. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why um, I, I was thinking of Philip because when we used to hang out together all the time with Debbie yes. Gordon and Joanna Muck and Joanne Cavana and, uh, and Philip, you and Philip were always, I mean, I don't know if I ever hung out with you without Philip being there. So that's why, well, you know, we were pretty constant companions. I, uh, people are always misjudging our friendship, but sure. we were brothers and, uh, sisters and, <laughs> and <laughs> sisters. We were, uh, very, very close and, uh, shared a house for many years. And I, I realized I, uh, stopped drinking about the same time, not too long. Well, I stopped drinking before Philip passed away, but there was a bar here that we used to always go to and, it was really fun and blah, blah, blah. And we always went together and I was, uh, had no, um, he was gone and I had no interest in going back. I, I played there a couple of times, but what bar I is had, that? The Eagle. Yes. The Eagle town. It's, it was a leather bar exclusively for a long time. Then some new people bought it. They, they kept that. And they did lots of uh, benefits for AIDS. Oh, like they raised like, I don't know, several million dollars over the years through a Sunday beer bust, which I used to really put a dent in. But uh, then they became a friend of mine that was a really great musician here, same Doug. He started working there and convinced him to have Saturday night, uh, no, Thursday night live mu- music. And it became a very popular venue for bands in town, even like touring bands. So, you know, something good. But 
once uh, Philip was gone, I really didn't have any interest in making it a social landing place. Plus, I didn't drink. And I was never the type to take the advice of friends. <laughs> well, you don't have to drink. You can go there and have water. It's like, you know, somebody said that to Philip once. And he went, I don't really want no fucking water. <laughs> In his extremely bitter voice. And uh, I sort of took that mantra as my own after a while. But uh, it is still there. I think it's still a music movie. Speaking of AIDS and the, the AIDS activism at the Eagle, I was thinking the Sister Double Happiness song, Freight Train. I think of that as one of the great rock and punk songs that talks explicitly about the AIDS epidemic? Uh, well, you'll find out talking to me, I have no modesty anymore. Don't. I used to. Like I used to. I have no apologies either. Uh, I think it's a really good song about AIDS. And I've heard uh, quite a few covers of it, which... I always love that. I always love to hear other people do the songs. Some do it like uh, as punk as they can, and others do it uh, as good as they can. I've heard in some of them, there's one band that does a really good version of it, keyboards and all this. And uh, of course, I have no idea what their name is, but uh, <laughs> I'm. <laughs> That's another thing. I don't really know names out here. But uh, it was a good song. I didn't ever hear a lot of songs about AIDS. Um, the first one I wrote about AIDS was before Sister started, but it was a concept at that point that Lynn and I had. And I wrote it in Santa Cruz on the beach. Not long after everybody was become conscious of AIDS and what was going on. And it was actually called on, on the beach. And, uh, when we were able to record it um, later on, a year or so later, we were able to add a ch cello. And it was very haunting, very pretty song. Uh, I never have heard any covers of that. But uh, Ray Train, I'm happy that fell into our heads. You know? It's a beautiful, amazing, and powerful song. It just, and it's just a great rock song, too. I mean, just the music. In your voice. There's a rock going on. Ben Cohen refused to let it be a sad song. It was just a reality song. Right. And I'm glad he did that. He was uh he translated it really well. Yeah. Really well. 
Yeah, when COVID hit and everybody was talking about, you know, the pandemic, I was thinking so much about that era when I was, you know, new in San Francisco and AIDS was just, you know, like when it was still untreat, you know, not really treatable. There it was, was no treatment. really devastating. I mean, it? going down to Castro and just seeing all these people wasting with the Carposi scarcoma. Yes. And, I mean, so stark. Yeah, it was. Uh... And that's—I wrote that song on on the beach in Santa Cruz. I was staying with a friend of mine down there who had to work every day, and it just so happened when I got there, <laughs> he lived near the uh, beach, and he lived in the garage behind these people's houses, and. Uh, it wasn't really decorated very well. So I was like, uh, well, I said, it was a little de depressing. Uh, it was sort of cold outside. And his boss, for some reason, said he needed to work a 12-hour day for three three days. So for 12 hours every day, I was in this little garage. <laughs> and I would walk down to the beach and... Uh, that's the sadness that sort of made me write the song. You know, it, it, it was just such a, like you're saying, you would go and see people literally wasting away in front of you. I remember a, a documentary I saw and some guy was going, you'd hear from somebody on a Tuesday and on Thursday, you'd hear that they died. Yeah. Yeah, you. That was one of the things you really had to live through to pick up that that atmosphere that you couldn't avoid almost. And it's sort of if you did avoid it, fuck you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you were purposely you you were purposely like ignoring it. I'm not saying it's even bad, but I'm saying it was a very fr frustrating, weird time. And the beginning of the COVID thing, you started thinking. Are we really going to see this again? And I guess a lot of people did see it again. Yeah. It was, uh, but the age thing was hard. That was really hideous. And it was, uh, well, there's also, and just like with COVID, all the, all the, uh, you know, I mean, obviously with AIDS being, you know, the right wing's response to that in the Reagan era you know, was just horrendous, added this whole other level, just like with COVID in a way, you know, the right wing's response to it being so horrifying. Different scene, but sort of the same. Yeah, different motivation, but. Yeah, the Reagan, they, that, that really is a good point. It's like the response of these people and the, just a general hate that people didn't have to disguise anymore. Right. They could turn it in their fear equals their response, which is hate. Yeah. You know, the queers get it. That's fine. What was that creepy guy's name in the heavy metal band? He had the really long hair and he had the t-shirt on with raids, AIDS. Axel Rose? Kills. Yeah, it wasn't Axel Rose. It was Sebastian uh, who? Sebastian Bach. Sebastian Bach. Yeah, AIDS kills F's dead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it was like like raid right are you really gonna let this happen but who are you talking to let it happen yes and they did let it happen 
Oh, what's the thing? Uh, Reagan didn't even speak the word AIDS until Hun- Rock-, Rock Hudson. Yeah, because she was a friend. He was a friend of Nancy's. Yes, yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and then you know, I was like, he's ignoring him. I don't think anybody. I don't know. Maybe they did ask. I don't know. But it was a very odd time. I think now it's a pretty odd time. Yeah, uh, I mean, my God, look at let I me mean, talk about coming. I mean, just reading today, just I, I, you know, of course, we're following what's going on with the right wing's attacks against trans people, which is really just yes. a gateway into, you know, general campaign yes. of hate against LGBTQ population. I mean, it's beyond dark, you know, to have lived and through the, the Tennessee 80s. thing that has. Oh, my God. If, if you're a drag queen, they'll put you in jail or something. I mean, and they yeah. want, I mean, they uh, drag queens reading in libraries. And I remember that includes the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Okay, I'm doing this interview. You, wanna, you should come join me. <laughs> Just think, remember that it includes the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. It does, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which are nothing but like a charity, a fun, big money raising that don't throw in jail if they you know, don't need to. But yep. Don't take their guns away. Right. I mean, you can walk down the street with a gun, but you can't walk down the street with fake eyelashes. So That's horrifying. It really is. And as they say, there's not a small amount of right-wing weirdos that would think nothing of shooting us. Right. This isn't some calling for a panic. It's calling to wake up. You know? Save your panicking until later, but wake up and but they don't care, right? And what is that guy Carlson Tucker Carlson? Yeah, Tucker Carlson, the news guy who's he's even being criticized by some Republicans, but not really many. That the whole thing of the uh, January sixth, it was mostly peaceful. It was mostly peaceful and. Mostly that <laughs> mostly peaceful. It wasn't. It was a, a crowd gone wild and gone by the president. So well, there well, you just go. how far we've gone. I mean, it just it occurs to me just the fact that Trump is a potential presidential like that he could be reelected after he tried to overthrow the United States democracy. You know what I mean? And, like and so th- that's how far we've fallen. Right. Oh, and the lies. So yeah. Many just... of his lies. They know it. And when they really it comes to a point they can't deny that it's a lie. They admit it and don't care. Yeah. They just don't care. Well that's what and it's then all he about. Tried to it? overthrow yeah. the government right. himself. It's no and and usually you would think after all these hideous, in-your-face actions, he could never get it. Yes, he could. He could totally get it. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a few million miles that are saying they'll run, they'll run, uh, like, against him, or maybe, but I don't know, he could get it. He could totally get it. And what if he does? And no matter what, if he loses, no matter if every vote is against him, right? 
he will say it's a lie. Right. And they'll come and they'll swoop up, you know, and everybody always says in their moment, you know, if he wins, I'll, uh, I'll leave the country. I'd love that. I would do it in a second. But I don't speak. This is like when I was going to get dra- drafted. And people would say, well, you can leave. Well, I don't have any money to move someplace to another co- country. I don't speak any other uh, la- language. Um, yeah, it's a nice fantasy, but all right. I mean, it'd be good. But instead, I mean, the whole idea. Right. I need to stay calm. The whole idea of him being like an elective, once again, will make you vomit. Yeah, it shows how far the thing has decomposed. But yeah, you know, it's like uh, looking back at your career, and I think back to you know Rock Against Reagan, and just what you you know were coming out of in Texas in the late seventies. I mean, nothing's changed. It's not as though we didn't see you know all this. I mean, obviously being in punk, you know, we saw the skinhead thing in the eighties. You know, yeah. Nazis on the street, Nazis killing people. And it's just Nazis now ruining shows. Just yeah, being uh, idiots. So, I mean, I, there was a couple of shows we did that were just ruined. You know, they were, and if they, I was friends with some of those folks, not a lot, but a few before the whole skinhead thing really started. And uh, a lot of them seemed to like the dicks, although we were the epitome. Commies, queers, <laughs> loud mouth women. Who are you and, talking uh, about? People like Mark Dagger or something? Mark. He didn't become a Nazi, right? I mean, he was just more of a street fighter. But there were those SF uh, skins. It, I mean, San Francisco had a big Nazi skinhead thing, which is crazy. It had a, it had a really big, and it's one of the places I think they had uh, the real, the real guys, the real Nazi clan. Uh, yeah, came here and really got into that scene. Yeah, uh, I didn't really ever speak to any of them after that very much because of the friendship thing. Before they didn't really go after me. They usually just not say anything. And I'm, of course, hey, how you doing? <laughs> I would never say anything. I, but yeah, even that, it, it was so. You, you really couldn't even, however, skipping point to point. Sure. When we were in uh, Vancouver, we were playing there, and it was a big, it was a pretty big show. And there were no skins there. And Debbie and I were talking to somebody, we said, so weird, there's no skins here, and San Francisco is overrun with, and it it's become such a political thing that it takes away from the just I'm gonna go and drink and listen to music and just enjoy it. You, I don't know, you couldn't really do that because it was in your face and you had to deal with it, and it was ruined everything. Bunch of yeah. shit. So he said, "How do you not have that?" I said, "Well." I guess they were telling the truth. I was never around there very much, but they said one night a few showed up and started a fight, and everybody just went and just beat the shit out of them. Yeah. At first, they just sort of never came back. 
Yeah, that was the, the, the European way. I remember, you know, Renee Vandermeer from uh, from BGK. BGK, yes. Yeah, I remember when I was in Holland and I went to a squat where they had shows and by the front door, they had two garbage cans full of baseball bats. And I was like, what are those for? And they're like, well, that's when the skinheads show up. Everybody gets a baseball bat and we hit them until they leave. And then they don't come back. And I was like, oh, okay, you Dutch people kind of have something figured out here. <laughs> a peaceful, beautiful Dutch have the solution. <laughs> no, it was, um, it just created such a weird thing. I don't know. One of the reasons, not really that the dicks broke up, but by this time, uh, it was a SF dicks with uh, Lynn Perko and Sebastian and Tim. But they were giving her a hard time. And they were rushing shows and Women in general were having a terrible time if they wanted to get out into the pit, which I sort of so over the entire notion of a pit, <laughs> a big dancing armpit. But and it, it was just so, it was unpleasant. Instead of leaving shows, even good, good shows, there was always that feeling of, yeah, you know, yeah. You'd said in something and it was visible. Yeah. And just um, when, you know, it came time to do something else. And that was a little bit of the influence. I, I just, um, you know, I want to tap into a different vein. And, uh, and we did. It was slight at first, but that was the evolution of what Sister, Sister, the first album was very, excuse my dick-like in its approach of uh, production and a little ragged, and but it got the point across. And the next album it was on Warner Brothers, which was so produced, it was like, oh, God. And uh, But, you know, things fell into emotion. If you live it, if you live it like we've done, it's not always as pleasant as could be, but it leaves you with stories. Yeah, and you meet uh, amazing people. Like I, Ma I think you mean amazing people. Yeah, I think about that in my own life. Just like thinking of all the time we spent together, and just like looking back, going, "That's so cool." The people that I was hanging out with. I mean, at all these different phases of my life, especially when I was really young, just to know somebody like you, and it's such a gift. How old were you back then? You, I mean, I was. Mean, I've always been a hundred years older. Twenty then. years old or something. 20. Yeah. I mean, I moved up there when I was maybe 17, 18, and then Debbie got me that job at Alternative Tentacles. Right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And Joe, who left a long time ago. Also, rest in peace. Rest in peace. I loved her. When we went to, she had already moved back to England. And when we played in London, she totally hung out with us. She and I hung out the next day. I made her, against her will, take me to a big Indian part of London mm -hmm. and to a really big t temple. And uh, she didn't really, <laughs> she didn't really go after that culture very well, but I, not in a bad way. But she was, but she did go with me. She went with us to our show. She went to uh, Nottingham. And I remember we were opening for Faith No, no More. 
And it was that, I don't know, really big club there, uh, ran by, I was told, and I believe it, uh, the Hells Angels of the area. And uh, they gave us like a six-pack or something of beer, which at that time was a very judgmental of, of the show in general. And uh, Joe went and bought us a bunch of a case or two of it. She was just so sweet the whole time, and I never spoke with her again. Yeah. And her passing was seemed to be in some kind of I don't know. And I I don't think her parents were available to chat about it. Mm. I my eyes are burning really bad because of some conditions, so I'm gonna deal with them for a second. Oh sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can hum. Da, da, da. I have full. Song. I have full editing capability. So. Uh, oh well, good. Take uh, your time. When, do you ever come down here to San Francisco? Well, I haven't been down since COVID. I mean, I come down, I used to come down pretty regu- regularly to see Martin Sprouse, you know, be- in Oakland. Um, Does he my, still live here? He lives in Oakland. Yeah, East Oakland. Wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah, you know, he doesn't probably get into the city that much, but uh, I told him I was going to be talking with you and he was very happy to hear that. Oh, well, if you say to tell him hello. I will for sure. I mean, he'll listen. I don't to know this. when I've seen anybody. I haven't really gone out. Well, I never really got to clubs, but I uh, since the whole COVID thing, I haven't really gone out. I have diabetes, and I, the last thing I really need, as bored as I am, I'm that much. I'm that boring, and uh, I live in the uh, su- sunset, mm-hmm. which I used to ride a bike through here every now and then. Like, oh my God, this isn't San Francisco. It's a wasteland. And uh, no, yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah. I like it out here. It's like a. Uh, How close are you to the beach? Well, a long walk. It, I live on. Uh, I live in the thirties, and it's I in the. I don't know, probably like forty-nine or something. Yeah. You can walk, but I'm very close. Only one walk from the park. Oh, nice! And uh, so, I used to walk out, walk over to the park, and then walk to the beach. It's very, it's beautiful. Oh yeah! And uh, I have a, uh, you know what a rascal is? Yes. I have a rascal now because I have lost the ability to balance. Mm. due to uh, diabetic neuropathy. Uh, You can't really feel where you're stepping. That's a big drag, but I'm trying to do uh, physical therapy twice a week. You know, because of that little uh, scooter thing, I'm able to go out and go. Otherwise, I couldn't really walk unless, you know, implements that I don't want to use. I don't want to be, you know, I'm not really complaining. I'm, I'm complaining a little bit. I could go on, <laughs> but there's a, it's best to try to get in a different state of mind. 
That's good that that technology is available so you can be mobile and get out there in the world. It's really good. And, you know, young sort of mohawks and loud punk music and stuff like this, now you're old, you have a rascal, and it (laughs) irritates people almost as much as the punk rock. (laughs) It's like, and if I get like a, like a like a ice cream cone and I'm riding it. Take your life in your own hands at that point. <laughs> People really and it goes sort of slow across the street in front of a red light. <laughs> it's the new Mohawk. Yeah, it's the new Mohawk of the older age. And you know, uh, I use my old man voice and try to get a little crazy print friendly. Where do you live? Can I come to your house? <laughs> The best one is what me and Danny Roman used to do in Europe. We'd see some really uptight. Oh, they really do. And I looked pretty normal. This was a sister. I thought I looked really normal. They didn't really go for it. But <laughs> if they spoke any English at all, can you hug me? I've lost control of my bouts. <laughs> Danny always loved that. Rest in peace. Rest in um, peace. So, although an old man now, I still have a few cantankerous bones in the body. You could not have some. I I don't think I could get by if I had none at all. You wouldn't be Gary Floyd, when the, the man we love. Probably true. Probably <laughs> true. Yes. So back in the, um, back yes. in your, the, your uh, youth, um, you, you didn't. You weren't born in Texas, right? Weren't you born in like Arkansas? Or I was born in Arkansas, a right. little town there called G U R D O N Gurdon. Oh, and, that's what, uh, okay. Yeah, it's between Texarkana and Little Rock. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, speaking those words, it's like a scorpion in my mouth. <laughs> I uh, only in the last maybe ten years or less would I go back there. Because I just can't put up with too much staring and weirdness. And now I feel like I look pretty normal for them. So it would be interesting to go back and see. I'd like to go to where my grandparents live. I'd like to buy their house because I think it's abandoned and falling down. At least some land. I told a friend of mine, I want to buy my grandparents' house in Gurdon and turn it into an international Hindu learning center and he went i wouldn't do that here man <laughs> he said oh you better not do that here i told him it was a joke but um so a little town in arkansas then we moved my father was a railroad man and the, as they say the shops got closed down so he got transferred to palestine texas and that's where i was until i left home some good people there. It was uh, there was never a time that I knew I wouldn't be leaving. <laughs> I would not be settled down there, and uh, I haven't been back in the, the I don't know, hundred and fifty years. I don't know. Did but you know, have, Did you know you ahead. were you were queer from the, the the beginning? The inception, always. I always knew. But I didn't really come out until after I left home. Although, although, contrary to what I used to think, 
even without speaking the words, how many people knew. I uh, I just didn't realize what a big sissy I was until I was able to analyze that list. And uh, I mean, I came out after a long, sad story with people, and when I got to the punchline, and I'm 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 gay, it was usually a <laughs> yeah uh, yeah. <laughs> I asked, really? Not a lot of shocked faces. No, they were maybe none. Yeah. My mother. And that's about it. She was still holding on to some. Uh... <laughs> well, you know. Was she religious? Yeah. No. No. Yes. No. Yeah. That You know what? When I told her that, she just said, my only sad thought is you couldn't tell me later. You uh, earlier, you didn't mm. feel like you could, and it was like being in a a heavenly beauty shop after that mm. with all the gay men in the world and my mom, and she became the mother of all the queers that I would straggle back home. And then in Houston, though, I really came out and some evil shit going on in that place, but. Um, so you moved to Houston first. Well, I got drafted, and the and they so I you was, did get uh, drafted. Yeah, and I was a conscientious of, objector. What so year would have this been? Seventy two. So the Vietnam War is going full steam. Yeah, it was going pretty harsh because my my father, he had World War Two, uh, Southern, born in Arkansas. Uh, but he was a lot more open-minded than I thought. And he supported my decision to be a CO, even wrote a letter to the draft board, which was people were supposed to do that. And um, so I was accepted as a CO. And they sent me this, when I got drafted, they sent me this huge uh, bunch of papers. They were the names and address of jobs around the country that if you got a job there, it would be accepted as military alternative service. Well, I wasn't the greatest student in the world because I was a big dumbass class clown. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't really know how to do anything. I'd never had another job mowing lawns. So the long story short, I got a job as a janitor in a charity hospital in Houston called Ben Davis. <laughs> it was named after the great Southern, whatever he was, Ben Davis. And uh, I was the only white person in a staff. Of course, all the janitors were uh, African-American, which I became really good friends with a bunch of them. And the women and I all became really good friends. I think they probably picked up on the fact that I was a funny bunny, as they <laughs> might rightfully say. And uh, it was a great experience. And I would go with one of my buddies to Third Ward, which was all black, and buy uh, the Black Panther paper that came out on the every Friday or something. It was just, it was a great experience. It was a horrible experience, but it was a good experience. 
Then when the are you there? Yep. Okay, my I have a low battery warning. Oh, okay. I should hook up. Yeah, you want to hook up? Oh, yeah, third warning on Friday because I was with my two friends that were pretty bad. I was treated. Oh well, here comes this white fat motherfucker. We have to be nice to him. So in '72, and as soon as that two year, well, a year and a half goes by, and I end up getting involved with some not exactly upright folks. <laughs> Criminal element. Let's just say they didn't eat too many sweets, and therefore they got in trouble. Mm. They were eating bitters. <laughs> and so one morning when I woke up after a sleepless night, I thought, I need to get out of here. And it was an obligation that I finished this military job. It was uh, two, two years, and I had six months to go. But even with that, I went I sold a radio that I had that was really nice to buy gas to get back to my hometown where on, I was able to get a job and extend the six month and I was able to work that job in a hospital where Rocky Erickson had once been as a pa patient. A psychiatric um, hospital? Uh, for the criminally insane. Rusk mm -hmm. State Hospital Rusk. for the criminally insane wasn't so obvious name. Uh, it was 30 miles from Rowland, but I finished that with many stories. Uh, I'm sure. Many stories. I mean, after I had been exposed to the wildlife, all at once I was back in the small town. And uh, Do you have any good stories from the psychiatric hospital? <laughs> Pick one. I do. <laughs> well, I mean, they could be boring. They could nope. not be. Some aren't boring. Um, boring's fine. Not boring's fine. Well, there was a guy. He was a black, very built-up guy that worked as a cook in the uh, huge uh, ca cafeteria. And we would every day go to his house for lunch and get really stoned. Really stoned. Probably not a good idea. And then we would go back to the hospital <laughs> and just breathe in the atmosphere. Um, there, there was a guy that I made friends with there, which I was told by the staff, don't make friends with anybody. So, but people were nice. Some people were real nice. And, blah, 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 blah. and some people had uh, killed their parents and uh, siblings. And then they became like geniuses in there. This is a story. He made, handmade a guitar and performed at a Christmas show that the poor old janitors were able to go to. And uh, he played a song. Afterwards, he actually was re released and lived in a halfway house for quite a while because he was really young when he did the deed. And uh, he finally got out of all that. And he went to college and became a really well-known pr professor. I don't know the school. I don't know anything. But I've read stories about him online before. And I had met him as a kid. He was a nerd-looking guy. 
he looked sort of the same when he got old. It was a very, I, I met this queer, very nearly queer guy. He was young and uh, his he hadn't really done anything. He wasn't really crazy. But his parents had caught him dressed up like a girl and his punishment took him to their medical doctor who went, oh no, he needs to be in Rusk. And it was up there in that little country world and they put him in there. And the first thing they did is they dressed him in girls' clothes, put electrodes on his body, and turned up the juice. And with every piece of women's clothing that he took off, they would turn the juice down until he didn't have, I guess he was naked or maybe, I don't know. And then they turned it off. This is your, uh, this is how you make people not gay. Just torturing them. Yeah, you tortured them. And then I remember it made me cry. And it was like, I actually wrote him. And after I all as soon, as soon as my six months that I had to work there were up, I left it, uh, the next day. I left and moved to Austin. But uh, yeah, I wrote him a letter later, you know, and he wrote me back and said he was doing good. He was out of there. And I told him, you need to leave. You need to go to Houston or San Francisco. You're not crazy. You're a drag queen. You're a you. You should do whatever you want to do. You're fine. So there are a lot of stories. But me and the, my uh, brother that worked as a uh, cook in the uh, whatever the cafeteria. Me and him were really good friends. We'd go there every day and get really stoned. And I realized my hilarious stories are all based on really being stoned. So they're probably dead times. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and then the dog barked. <laughs> Not really funny. But uh, it was just one of those experiences. Then I moved to Austin. And what, what, what year did you move to Austin? Like 75, 76? It was earlier, like 73. 73. And I met a guy and we moved in together and we became very, very close. And then uh, we went our own ways, which was good. But I ended up in Palo Alto, which is real drag. But uh, I could get on the old Sam Trans bus and go to the city. And Always had some experiences. Yeah, it was a it was a great time. I lived in McAllen, uh, Texas, which is right on the bottom, across from Matamoros, where mm -hmm. those poor folks were just uh, kidnapped, two of them killed. Right, that family was. Or it, yeah. yeah, it was pretty wild even back then. It was pretty mm -hmm. wild. Did you spend much and, time uh, over there across the border in Matamoros? We'd go over there at least once or twice a week to buy mezcal. And uh, then we'd always have to make sure we had enough time to get stopped and search and on the coming back. Yeah, we would go out sometimes. It was pretty wild. But it finally became such a hassle because we all, this was in 76. We all had really long hair. And uh, so the police would constantly mess with us. And finally, I didn't want to go anywhere. I was sick of, yeah. sick of that. It was, uh, everything has been squeezed for what I could get out of it. Mm -hmm. you know? And I lived down there in uh, Mac Allen. 
What kind of music were you listening to at that era in like 76 before you got into punk? Well, my favorite kind was like single player, like uh, blues, Lightning, Lightning Hopkins, mm-hmm. Texas, John blues. Lee Hooker. Yeah, I liked all of those old blues guys, and I loved it with that. One of my favorite albums that I listened to for years, it came out earlier than, I think it probably came out in the 69s, 70s, was Canned Heat and John Lee Hooker messing with the hook. They yeah. had, it was a, like a double album, and one was just him playing the, the uh, get, guitar. It was incredible album. I love that. I, I still do. And uh, Johnny Winter, I really loved him. But I'd listen to anything and make a judgment whether I liked it or not. Um, some folk stuff. I I like Bill Oaks. I always liked him. I liked Dylan during that time, too. I didn't care what he did. But then there was a guy. This was back in Austin. <laughs> back in Austin. It was me and my partner, and a guy that lived in the house to begin with named Jim. He was a mountain climber and he was a big bedroom commune and all of that. Uh, his friend that used to come and visit brought me some singles one time. And he said, this is the new music from e- England. And it was early p- Pistols. And it was the uh, 45s. And he brought down... Uh, what was Joan Jett's band? All the run- Runaways. And mm-hmm. he always had stories to tell. Well, then he got into a few illegal nose candy drugs, making it itself. And he went a little crazy. And he was, his name was David Powell. He was put in prison in uh, Huntsville. And he liked to do it because he machine gunned a cop. They don't like that anywhere. But they really don't like it in <laughs> Texas. It's they frowned really upon. Don't like it. Yeah, so they tortured him for a few years in the pr- prison, and then uh, killed him. Well, whatever. Um, that's what happens when you machine gun a cop. But his influence of that nasty punk rock had taken root. I got really into it, and then the Ramones were first out, and then they came through town and played at the Art. Armadillo, which is a big club, and all that I ended up playing at later on. Armadillo wor- World World Headquarters. Armadillo World he- Headquarters. Yeah, the Clash played there. Zappa played there a few times. And, I mean, everybody. That's where people played. That was a big place to play. But the Ramones was the first punk group that you saw. They're the first. Yes, I believe so. And then I moved to Palo Alto, and uh, but ended up in San Francisco seeing. Uh, the pistols at Winterland mm-hmm. with uh, a Penelope Houston and the uh, Avengers and the nuns. Right. They were as freaked out as the set, set pistols. They were, uh, it was quite a show. It left quite a bit. And then, then the, the Ramones. And uh, yeah, so I went. And I cut my hair the next day, and I had long hair. I was glad to let it go. And as the new Christian will do, I was more Christian than Christ. I became quite, <laughs> uh, I think the word is ass. Uh, 
from a tired sort of hip, hippie to a big ass, which was quite an accomplishment. <laughs> and uh, I told everybody I was in a band called The Dicks, not absolutely a lie, and would make posters. And I had met another friend who was just a good friend. Uh, and he would help me make the posters. And he would put them up everywhere. All over the drag in Austin where the posters go. And everywhere. And I made up an address, 1313 Mockingbird Street. The dicks are playing and would make up other names. But my motto was, the first 20 people to bring a gun will get free drinks all night. <laughs> I think I'm proud of that one. It was... <laughs> I would be like thrown in jail now for making that, but it was, uh, and people wouldn't lie. They'd come up and go, oh, I saw you guys. You were really you good. Lying shit. <laughs> <laughs> you lying yeah. I, I became friends with most of them. I said, man, I'm such a liar. I should know that. And, uh, but then I walked in the, the club roles in Austin and, it was Buff and Glenn, but I had never seen them. They were from uh, San Antonio, so I didn't really know them. But I'll always say, more than like young punks, they look like seasoned prisoners. Yeah, the kind of people you look at and you can not not when, but how many years did you spend in in the camp? <laughs> you. They they made you want to talk prison talk, and they I think I told well I was pretty drunk I would never have talked to them because they, they really didn't look they were fearsome they, they looked a little fierce and but I was drunk I didn't go to the club unless I could be pretty drunk I said yeah I'm in a band they said well we're in a band too in San Antonio but we we hate it we want to move here now and I went, well. I mean, they said, well, what's your name? I said, the dicks. They didn't really flinch, and I thought, that's a good sign, because I didn't think they were gay. Yeah. Even Glenn, I didn't think. And they said, well, I, we play uh, bass and gu guitar. Like, what, what do you need? And I went, a bass and guitar and drums. <laughs> and I, in other words, you don't have a fucking band. Uh, some might say that. They and they immediately wanted to join. That's so and, awesome. Uh, that's when we started the band, yeah. And I, a friend named Barry Gavin, whose brother was in a really good band there called The Next, one of the thousands of Next, but but the brother, his uh, Barry Gavin, Barry Gavin, said, I can manage you, you guys. And we went, what business do we have? But he got us to show, and the first show was at the Armadillo. And it was called the Punk Prom. It was sort of afternoon into evening. And then the hippies came in, and we left. But it was uh, even recorded. Right. That's, 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 that's the yeah, split, big, big Boys record, right? That's right. Oh, no. Is is that the one? The Big Boys Dicks? Or is that Raul's? Uh, that's at Raul's. Big boys are side B, and the yeah, dicks yeah. are side D. Right. Uh, we released it. We released it on a uh, color vinyl ten inch. I see. Okay, and that's your very and then first we put show. It on a C CD. It's the very first show. 
live and, album. Uh, it sounds all right. You know, we released another live one called Raw that was a little different. It was at a club here, and we did that for uh, the last show. We sold it at the last show. It's very typical of a drunk rock dick show. Yeah. And uh, that's what it was. And uh, I'll put this, it has a great cover. And then we have a double live in Houston. And one is the, uh, like, original uh, at uh, the Armadillo, but a different mix. And then the live show that we did in a club in Houston called Hungry Butt. (laughs) Kill up on the heart. And uh, live at Raul's. Mm-hmm. So, and then the SF Dicks did uh, the these people, yeah, and the forty five no fucking war, right? And so there's uh, quite a few. Most people just think there's one album or something, and uh, people write me all the time about you should have put out a second album. It's like <laughs> do your history. But speaking of people we've lost, Spot the was the producer of Kill from the Heart, right? And he just he just passed. He was the producer of Kill from the Heart and also the uh forty five I, I hope you get drafted and no fucking war. Right. So both bands worked with him. And during the uh Kill from the Heart thing, he sort of lived with uh me and Philip and our friend to- Toby. Mm-hmm. And Cindy, a good friend. I don't know. Did you see that Dicks? She made Do- a movie about the, the documentary. Dicks yes, I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dick, yeah. The Dicks from Texas film. That's right. Yeah. And she and Spot got along really well. And uh, yeah, he had a chunk in my life. And he was a great guy. I. <clears throat> It was very sad. I asked about it because I never saw him after when I would go back and do these shows in Austin. I didn't never see him. And I mean, I always loved him. I always wished him much happiness. Even now, I wish him happiness. Yes. It's such so many great records, too, that his name is. What a list he must have had. I never even saw the whole list. Yeah. But he just worked with everybody. Yeah. Yeah, so part of our history, you know. Mm-hmm. Big, there's so many, though. My God, so many. <laughs> so when did you discover radical left-wing politics? Like, was that concurrent with punk? Like, your your interest in, like, Maoism? Much and, earlier. Much earlier. So that was back in the Black Panthers days. Well, earlier. I mean, I was drafted in 72. I was, at that time, a CO. I didn't believe, like, I was a pacifist but i also was reading what well, music you know on the music of the day i like the left stuff better than i like the like uh muskogee usa or something although i yeah. did end up very much liking merle <laughs> yeah the whole like imperialist Usually covered up with a, well, I care what those people are having to go through. No, you don't. And the people that are causing war, they don't care what they're going through. They want to be able to put the Kmart and the McDonald's 
And if they can do that, they don't give a shit. And we don't want the communists to go, no, that, that's not, you're lying. You're lying, you're imperialist, and let's define it all, and that's, you fall into that category. And I always thought that was really bad. And I was about to get called up to go and get killed or killed to perpetuate the imperialist ideology. And so as a sensible person, I knew I couldn't leave the country. I didn't want to go to prison. I have uncles in prison. I didn't want to go. So I tapped into my pacifist ways. And I really wasn't being like a hypocrite about it. I just found that lifestyle and I chose that. I wasn't going to go do it. As I said, I didn't want to go to prison. I didn't want to be the CO that would be drafted and become like a medic. I didn't want to do that. So I did, uh, like I chose what I chose. And I was accepted and I'm thankful that that's what happened. But reading and just going out of my way to find out about the countries that I didn't necessarily support. Like, I never supported the idea of, like, a Russian communist state. Right, sure. I don't want to live where they ban newspapers and all that shit. Although, at the same time, I did find China an interesting uh, situation. And later on, I mean, of course, I denounced a lot of it. But I don't denounce all of it. And the same with here. I think a lot of it is just so weird. I mean, a country that lets people like Trump come to power is either not teaching its people very well or it's just gone amok. Yeah. And I hope it's not gone too far, but I don't support everything we do and I don't deny everything we do as being a way to deal with life. I, I, you know, and I've become much more spiritual in the last 25, 30 years. Yeah. And uh, this is another thing as an old person. To you, I don't mind. To most of all, I really don't mind. But I never feel like I have to justify my beliefs. And I live like I I believe mostly, most part. I could be nicer, <laughs> although that would be hard for most people to understand. But just trying to be honest with yourself. Yes. And being being nice to people, at least being nice to people. Try not to be too selfish. And I mean, that's really, that's really the religion anybody needs. Just, and the rest is like frosting, which I like a lot of frosting. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the politics goes back and the spiritual goes back. Yeah. I, mean, I, I remember, I remember thinking of you as a person who was on the path, you know, when we were hanging out, you were into Hindu philosophy, Buddhism. I mean, and obviously you still are. Yeah, I still am. And I'm glad to, I'm glad of that. And, but I've met a lot of uh, people that go to a pagan path and I appreciate that. Sure. And, uh, cause it's a real thing. It's not just someone, oh yeah, I'm a pagan today. It's a, it's a real thought out way of life. I've also met some uh, cr Christians that I think really hold uh, Christ as uh, some somebody, some philosophy, something real, and not something to make up a new bunch of shit about. Yeah, because Hindus will also do that. 
Of course. And Buddhists will do it. I mean, they, they all do that. Yeah. So you have to find what you want to anchor into and do it. Yeah. But never be afraid to pull the anchor up. You know, you 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 got to float where you see an open space. I just think that's one of the best things. Right. I'll always, uh, I'm sure I'll always have that, and I hope so. Because all of them really go back to that same thing. And like, I'm a big believer in the karma, bad and good. And, you know, it just depends on how deep you want to re research and follow whatever you see as your path. Yeah, and I, f I feel like... um having adopted a meditation practice, I mean, it's makes all the difference for me. Just, just, just to watch the mind do its thing and not attach to the, to, to its actions is such a, is like to me, the most liberating uh, act spiritual activity that I've ever found. Well, that's the big mistake that a lot of people make. It's like you sit down and of course, the minute you try to clear your mind, forget it. <laughs> just a big barking dog, biting yes. titties. And yes. Also, always a big set of nuts and something. And instead of going, no, 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 you just let it go. Yeah. And and it's at first I thought, no, that won't happen. But it does. In a minute, you just, it just becomes something silly after a while and then it will dissolve. Yeah. You just let the mind go. That's the thing that's so incredible. There's a saint that I like a lot and she was talking about. The second you sit down, your thoughts are like a different colored rope wrapped around a big spool. It mm -hmm. just all comes back and all unwinds. And you'll eventually see it all go in front of the eye. But you don't try to grab onto it. That's the frosting I was talking about. Yeah. That's the frosting. There's always somebody saying something very cool out there. Always somebody that knows more than us. You can't get hung up about it. You can learn what you can disregard what you don't like but yeah the meditation but just to sit and be quiet yeah for a minute even if you don't know if you're not meditating whatever look at a bush blow a little bit yeah it's uh and who would know almost who would know more about the quiet than the people who have been there during the most loud <laughs> like you and i and my other friends it's like you know, we've let that, we've let them loud and loud clear our souls. You know, I often think about some of the sad songs I've written <clears throat> and the loud, wild songs I've written. Those are all expelling emotions. And I'm so glad that I did it then. I, rather than hold any of those things, because it'll really weigh down on you, it weighs down, hurts. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think music, it's like, um, I mean, I think of just crying, like, like you know, times where you get to the point where you have to cry and that, that act of crying, that physical release of letting a feeling move through you is so healthy. And I think of music like crying out and and being loud, making that noise, that cathartic sound or or, or experiencing a band making that sound. It, it right. is, it's a movement of energy that has to happen to be healthy. It just is. I always wanted to say I laugh and cry easy. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I'm writing a little, uh, well, it's a bigger book now. Sort of a thought for the day, but it's short prose on every day. And they're not like 
look at the sky. The bird, they're like, you know, I saw a car wreck and blood, and the person looked me in the eye. Not all, some of it. I've cried during a lot of those. I'm laughing a few, but you know, let all the emotions out, let them out, and yeah, it's good. Just feeling what's going on in your body, in your head. It's a, it's good. It can be a little weird sometimes to know. I read back over things I've written, and I went down. I hope nobody reads this until after I'm gone. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll put me in, in a mental institution. No, they're all parts of what I'm, you know, feeling. And I can tell, you know, people have those feelings. I can tell you do. So it's cool. Okay, now let me ask you a question. What do you do besides um, your pods? Well, you see behind me a bunch of paintings. I, I do um, your paintings. oil, oil yeah, paintings. Yeah, that's a big, I have so many, I have piles, my whole place is filled with paintings. So yeah, painting is probably my main uh, creative activity Great. now besides conversation. I find painting is another one of those activities that for me straddles the action and non-action or non-thinking. Like there's flow states that I get into in that activity that uh, even if I make utter crap, the act the activity of doing it is very valuable. Well, I will say this. I completely understand about your house is overrun with paintings. I also paint now. That's my main outlet. And uh, sometimes I, I have to stop from painting I, because I don't have any place to put them anymore. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an issue. <laughs> it, it literally, <laughs> I have like three boxes that are stored in the garage outside. I just opened, uh, well, I actually have four, but three I opened and I've tried, I'm trying to sell a few of them because that's really, I don't, I don't want to throw them out. Maybe have a painting burning one day, but I don't want to. I've had three good shows at a gallery in Austin and they're not what you would think of as a gallery. They're my gallery stuff. And, uh, you know, I've had a showing in Houston, and I've had two or three here. But the Austin thing was the best. I actually was able to get rid of a baby that's been born. You nurture it. Then it's time to leave the hell home. Go on yes. Go someplace else and live happily on this person's wall. And, uh, but that's the main outlet. I love doing it. That's wonderful. What what not, what type of paint do you use? Are you an oil painter or acrylics or watercolor? Acrylic. Yeah. And some uh, like I can use several on one painting. Yeah. Like acrylics mostly, what watercolors. I also have nice black pens mm -hmm. that I like to outline things in. And but uh most of them are like uh eleven by fourteen. Mm-hmm. Or some a little bigger, and I was trying to try and get a smaller one. I don't find the free freedom there, but we should do it. Yeah. We should do a trade because I'd love to, I'd love to have one of your paintings, and I'd love to give you one of mine. I also like to do that. You know, uh, if you look on Facebook, I have some up there. Okay, you might have to scroll around a little bit, but I do have some up there. Now, Tim Kerr, you know, big boys, of course, uh, Austin, yes, I'm yes. sure a friend of yours. He does, 
Yes, yes. He seems to be pretty good at at having shows regularly and showing his art all the time. It seems like he could help you get your paintings. I mean, I can't imagine you couldn't get uh, an audience or you know continually have your paintings moving out into the world. Maybe I'll ask him someday. Yeah, I mean, he's he seems to be pretty good at that. No, he's doing good. He's uh, I uh, do the. I have a few outlets. It's funny. I don't pitch as much as i should right and uh well we don't get into art for marketing you know it's like we don't get into it to be marketers i'm the worst i'm the worst i always was at music and i'm that's why i was always happy to have for a while debbie and then other people to uh help with the marketing thing because i can't call people and go i'm a really good singer and i mean i can't do i would Whoever vomit and do that. Yeah, you're an artist. You're not a hustler. How did you meet Debbie Gordon? How did you guys first? Because that's that's a real link person between you and I. How did uh, how did you how did you first meet Debbie? She's such a legend. I gotta have her on the pod. You really should. Oh, she's God. a teacher in New New York City. That's what I've heard. Yeah, she's doing. She's great. Um, I lived in Austin. The Dicks toured to. San, San Francisco. We went back to Austin. I immediately wanted to move there. I finally got the other guys to say yes. They didn't stay too long, though. They moved, so I reformed them. Back. But so before I moved, Philip said, I'm going to go ahead and move out there because we had a friend who was here. He said, Scott said, I can live with him until you get there and we'll find a place. One of the dicks, Glenn, and his girlfriend, Cindy. <laughs> so Philip moved. I moved to Lake Jackson, lived with my mom for like two months, did some work with her, and uh, saved money, set the date, moved out here. I think we got here on a, a Friday or Saturday. And on Sunday, we all wanted to go to the punk rock mall, just a multi-stores and a little place. And Philip said, before we go, let's stop by, because I met a girl at school, Stella. I've been to her house, and I've also become friendly with her roommate, Debbie Gordon. And, oh, by the way, when we first moved out here, Philip said, I got this little apartment. It's a sublease for my friend, Debbie Gordon. So before I met Debbie, I was living in her old apartment. Mm. And uh, so I said, okay, that'd be cool. So when Debbie and I, I walked in the house, Debbie was in her bedroom doing something. But she said, hey, you're Gary. And I went, oh, yeah. And we started joking and immediately clicked. We immediately clicked. And the way she became manager was... We were playing at a pretty big club here the on Broadway. Legendary. And I had to go by. Oh, you, you remember. We oh, had yeah, to Dirk go Dirksen. By. Dirk Dirksen. Yes. Here's a whole nother Oh, story. God, yeah. <laughs> Huge chapter. Whole nother chapter. He <laughs> uh, wanted us to come by to sign a paper about the show. And we were going to get, I don't know, $50. And... Basically nothing. So Debbie was there, and she looked at the kind. She said, 
this is ridiculous. These bands, they have an album on Black Flag's label. They just moved it from Texas. They, they have a good name around town. You can't give him $50. And he sort of could tell with Debbie, although he was a big prick, that he had met his match. And they went back and forth a little bit. So he walked on the ended. We ended up giving him like $200 and a case of beer. And when we left, I said, you know what, no, I, I, I've got to tell you something. And she said, what? And I went, you're the manager of the Jackson. And she went, get out of here. She doesn't smoke anymore. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yes. But she's doing great. I love that. And uh, she was. And then it bled over into sister. And uh, then we had a different, not a great breakup, but we withheld our friendship. And we talk on every other day, probably. Still very close. I'll leave the rest up to you to find out. Okay, She's doing yeah, great. Yeah. I'll get, I'll get her number great. from you. I, I will... I will send it to you. You let me know when you want it. I love that. Yes. No, Debbie. Yeah. She's uh, Debbie's the real thing. Yeah, she sure she's is. She's going to come out there. She's going to stay with us pretty soon. Oh, that's great. Next yeah, month. I, re- yeah, I remember when uh, Faith No More got, you know, they they got huge and she became the uh, A&R person for Warner Brothers. And right. she and that from because I'm when I first met her, she was the manager of Alternative Tentacles, and then she hired yeah. me to work there. And then when that boom happened, uh, I guess it was around the Nirvana time uh, that she started working. And remember, she had her expense account as a as a major label person. And we yes. go, out, go out for our dinners and have our. This one's on Billy Idol. <laughs> she, <laughs> I was in bars with her. I'd say about three hundred times. When she would keep the amount on the back of a cocktail napkin. Yes, I remember and that. And it'd be like, I don't know, a few hundred bucks, and she'd turn that in. She'd turn the napkin in. Yeah. I don't think they ever said anything to her. They just they just disbanded the whole thing. No, I mean, she, uh, there was so much money in the record industry at that time where she was saying there was times where they would say, you didn't spend enough this month. Like, are, are you doing your job? You got to go out there and spend more, you know? She'd stay at that big uh, Japanese hotel, the Miyako or whatever. Right, right. And we would come out from an expense account, gifted evening, and then we'd go to the old bar room at the Miyako. (laughs) She was uh, quite generous. I remember also she was out working one night. We had to go someplace, and me and Philip went to, and she said, you can drink all you want. But if I'm schmoozing with people, don't say anything. And if you see me being a big phony, don't say anything. <laughs> I'm working. As, as long as we can have our drinks. If the drinks run dry, I'll have to talk. <laughs> I'll have to come and ask you why, honey. No, she, uh, that, was a, that was a good job. She was great. Yeah. It was a time. It was a time, it no question. Time. It really was. It really, really was. Yeah, I mean, so I have to go soon. Okay, wonderful. Uh, it's been so good seeing you and talking with you, Gary. I'm gonna have just to stay in touch, and yeah, you know, we'll have I mean, you back. We'll have you back in a while. But we we should uh, talk on the pod in the future too, because uh, that you know, would be great. 
The whole reason I started I this it. thing is for just an excuse to to bring up old friends and and talk with them. Not a and, bad reason, man. Yeah, it, it's, it's very it's great. It is. I found a painting last week, and somebody came by to pick it up, and it turns out to be a guy I didn't know him, although he, he said we had met before, but and he turned out to be sort of a helpies like manager of Robbie's different projects and faith no, no, no more. He helped them do stuff. And we got along so well. I thought it's such a, I'm so glad he came by instead of just mailing. Was, was, this, was this Greg Workman? No, it's not Greg. His name is like Tim something. Oh, I see him. Or Tom. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I should look it up before I see him again. Um, <laughs> No, I've never really heard. Maybe he's lying. Yeah. <laughs> we, meet so many, we, we meet so many people in this life. We meet a lot of people. <laughs> Some, although telling fibs, are hilarious. <laughs> so, as long as the story's good, it doesn't necessarily have to be true. I've told a few stories. <laughs> when we used to do these interview tours, mostly in Europe, it said the same spot all day. People would come to you. And then that last couple might have gotten the story because I might have been tipping a little brew by then. Danny Roman used to tell him he left the opportunity to become a professional baseball player. They go, Are you serious? He's like, yeah, it was rough, man. It's all right. He never he didn't know how to play. He'd never seen the baseball. But he sure told him. That's funny. Okay. Let's stay in touch. Yes, thank we'll you so stay much in touch. for like, letting thank. me do it. It's nice. Well, thank you. It's an honor to talk to you on the pod and to share you with the people. And we'll talk again soon. I love you, Gary. Same here. I wish you all happiness. Okay. All, all the happiness to you. Bye. Bye. Bye.